Welcome to Boundaries of Expression, a podcast from Article 19, exploring the limits and challenges to freedom of expression. I'm Jo Glanville. Today, we're talking about the Human Rights Act. The government is proposing to reform it and replace it with a Bill of Rights. Amnesty International has called the plans human rights vandalism. But as part of the reforms, the government has singled out one human right above all others, freedom of expression, and it's proposing to strengthen it. So could this actually be a good opportunity for free speech? When the Human Rights Act was passed in 1998, the aim was to bring rights home by incorporating the European Convention on Human Rights into UK law. It enables us to defend our rights in UK courts and requires public bodies to treat everyone equally. The government's consultation claims that human rights legislation has in fact created a democratic deficit, shifting power away from Parliament towards the courts. Part of its remedy is to give free speech trump card status, as Dominic Raab, the Justice Secretary, puts it. He wants to do battle against what he calls wokery, as well as the impact of political correctness and the right to privacy. So is this something that freedom of expression defenders and the media should welcome? Or is freedom of expression a hostage in the culture wars? Today, we're talking to three experts on human rights, freedom of expression and media freedom to try and make sense of it all. Quinn McHugh is Executive Director of Article 19, which defends freedom of expression internationally. June Pang is Policy and Campaigns Officer at Liberty, the Civil Liberties Organisation. Lizzie Green is Group Legal Advisor at Associated Newspapers. Its publications include the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. Thanks so much for making the time to be part of the discussion today. Before we get into the detail of what the government's proposing on freedom of expression, I'd like to ask June and Quinn first as human rights advocates. Do we actually need a Bill of Rights? Do we need this Bill of Rights? June. Thank you so much, Joe, and for having us on this podcast. I think the question that you're asking is actually the fundamental one when we're thinking about this entire scheme of overhaul of the Human Rights Act. And from Liberty's perspective, we very much dispute the premise underlying this exercise. There is no need for a Bill of Rights to replace the Human Rights Act. The independent panel tasked with reviewing the Human Rights Act 20 years on said as much in its really comprehensive report evaluating the impact of the Human Rights Act on protections in the UK. And fundamentally, not only are a lot of the government's proposals unevidenced and employing a very divisive rhetoric, we are really concerned that the thrust of the government's proposals will be to reduce access to justice and to limit the ways that people can practically enforce their rights and freedoms in the UK with the long-term aim of actually eroding the fundamental rights and values that the Human Rights Act protects in the UK at a time when, as we can see through uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and other human rights crises all around the world, these values undergirding the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights have never been more important. And so fundamentally, we don't believe that there needs to be a new Bill of Rights. Thank you. Quinn? 
coming from an American, it might be odd to hear that I don't necessarily think the need for a Bill of Rights is strong in the United Kingdom. Fundamentally, I agree with June that the Human Rights Act provides a strong framework for freedom of expression and the fundamental rights as put out in the European Convention. There's a lot of space already existing in the United Kingdom to strengthen certain legal premises and to provide certain laws that would strengthen freedom of expression underneath the auspices of the Human Rights Act without fundamentally throwing it out and needing to rewrite it. Things like providing specific legislation on anti-slaps provisions, strengthening source protection for journalists. All of those are things within the bounds of the capability of the governments to do and parliament to do by passing legislation without fundamentally altering the rights framework that has seen actually a strengthening of freedom of expression in its provision in the United Kingdom since it was adopted. And just to say that slaps that you referred to are strategic lawsuits against public participation that have been recently very much in the news with individual journalists being targeted and attempts to silence them. So as a director of of an organisation that focuses on defending freedom of expression, do you not see these proposals as potentially being a good thing for freedom of speech? As an organization that focuses on freedom of expression, we welcome the debate around ways to strengthen the application of freedom of expression in the United Kingdom. There have certainly been instances where there have been perhaps interpretations of the law that we haven't necessarily agreed with. There, We've been on record on some of those, particularly in the way that sometimes the government has relied more on secrecy as opposed to access information, which fundamentally erodes the the rights to freedom of expression and information. But overall, we're concerned that freedom of expression is being used as as a wedge issue at the present time that's effectively papering over a lot of other measures that are fundamentally eroding freedom of expression at the exact same time the government's seeking to say that we're reforming the Human Rights Act because of freedom of expression. And I think the whole totality needs to be taken into account. Thank you. Lizzie, you're a lawyer with Associated Newspapers, publishing the Daily Mail and and the Mail on Sunday, amongst other newspapers. And you also took part in a joint response with with other publications to the consultation. And the Daily Mail's known not to be a fan of the Human Rights Act and has supported Dominic Raab's proposals for freedom of expression. And I should also say that you're speaking today in a legal, not an editorial capacity. But I wonder what your response as a media lawyer is when you see these proposals. Do do you see them as being a positive move? Well, I think the proposals are more of a headline aim at this stage. Uh, They're pretty vague in terms of what they're actually suggesting in terms of reforms to the legislation. So we really wanted to take this opportunity to discuss with lawyers who deal with these issues every day as I do, put forward some really detailed drafting proposals that we think would have a real impact. And we do think there's, there's need for reform in this area. So whether these, all these proposals need to come through as changes to the Human Rights Act or as a, a British Bill of Rights, some may be able to come through other areas, but we really hope the government takes note of them and, and that we can improve the position for press freedom. I wonder also... June, when we see the way that moves to reform or support media freedom are spoken of in the same breath as a war on cancel culture or wokery, 
what lies behind that, what appears to be a sort of confusion of different categories, perhaps? I think that's a really astute um, observation in terms of the confusion of the categories and the ways that it is possible to weaponize and the government has weaponized different rights and different, I guess, groups and interests in order to justify more comprehensive, as Quinn said, reforms and overhauls that in their totality actually are regressive. I think we as an organization have always defended freedom of expression ever since our foundation in in the 1940s. We formed in order to defend people who participated in the hunger marches. And so protest, for example, has been a cornerstone of our work. And recently, in the last year, we've been working very hard to resist the police crime sentencing and courts bill, among others, because of the ways that it will restrict freedom of expression by clamping down on essentially noisy protests. And it's just extremely hypocritical, I guess, for the government to, in one breath, through the Human Rights Act consultation, basically hinge its entire reform program on this uh, particular reading of these rights, while in the second breath trying to rush through this legislation that will have such an enormous impact on freedom of expression rights in this country. And also, if we look at the specific proposals, and on this, our response agrees with what um, you've said, Lizzie, and that a lot of the proposals are quite vague and it's not entirely clear what evidence base the government is using to justify its proposals. We know that none of the proposals were actually considered by the independent panel because they weren't tasked with considering the substantive rights protections within the Human Rights Act, just the infrastructure of it. And for that reason, we do have concerns about the ways that it might clamp down on media freedom and we're not ignorant of these possibilities. We very much think that we need to consider the government's scheme of overhaul in its totality. And if the government, for example, succeeds in enacting reforms that, for example, as it sets out in the consultation in another part, to decouple the meaning of the rights in the proposed Bill of Rights from the rights protected under the ECHR, then that will create a divergence in protections that could actually be really damaging to human rights. And we know that the government, for example, is very hostile to direct action. It's been very hostile to the judgment in Ziegler about protesters engaging in kind of obstructive forms of protest. And so fundamentally, we don't think it's a good faith exercise, even if it purports to seek to strengthen freedom of expression. One of the issues is protection of journalist sources. The government's proposing to address that as part of its reforms. And there was, as you'll all know, a landmark case just very recently when Chris Mullin, the journalist and former MP, won the right to protect his sources. So, Quinn, I'm wondering, when you see that proposal, do you think this is a great opportunity? Article 18 has been very consistent for a long time that source protection needs to be strengthened in the United Kingdom and in other places around the world. Very frequently, law doesn't recognize the important relationship between a journalist and their sources and the role that that plays in providing accurate information that allows citizens to hold their government to account. So yes, 
source protection is an opportunity. I do think there are other ways of addressing source protection, perhaps through a media shield law or some other things that might be put in place that would not necessarily, again, require a wholesale revision of the Human Rights Act in order to accomplish that. And June, do you feel sceptical about this or do you think this is something that should be embraced since it's necessary? I think one of the disingenuous ways that the consultation is presented is that it doesn't actually talk about the ways that the Human Rights Act has protected journalist sources already in the UK, for example, through raising the cases of Goodwin or Financial Times, or even the case of Sally Murrer, who was able to rely on Article 10 in order to protect herself and her sources. I think there are improvements that the government could make. Um, For example, its upcoming reforms of the Official Secrets Act. The government has actually resisted and objected to the Law Commission's recommendation to introduce a public interest defense for journalists. We obviously very much support the objective of these proposals, but we question, A, why it's not trying to enact reforms in other areas and other pieces of legislation or through things like anti-slaps legislation that it could, and it has made moves now to consult on and hopefully to pass eventually. But it could do a lot more in other areas to protect this kind of specific area of freedom of expression. And second, we slightly question whether it would make sense in a Bill of Rights, which is supposed to be a kind of high-level constitutional statement about all human rights in this country. We slightly think that it might be out of place. I mean, we don't know what it's actually going to propose because its proposals are so vague, but I think those would be our kind of questions back at the government in terms of its ambitions. So Lizzie, as you were saying earlier, this is an opportunity to address significant gaps in the defense of media freedom. And in your response to the consultation, in your joint response with other publications, some of the things you're calling for include tackling the impact of data protection laws on media freedom. And the question arises really, aren't these issues that, you know, should already be on the agenda for the government? Absolutely. A lot of these issues should be being looked at. And we've already discussed the issues with the Official Secrets Act in the direction that's heading and the lack of a public interest defence. And we've talked about source protection as well, and we, we think there are gaps there. What we proposed in that area is narrowing the justification for obtaining an order that journalists should disclose their sources. At the moment, it's, it's down to whether it's necessary in the interests of justice. And we say that's just too vague when we're talking about such fundamental protections as, as journalists' sources. And absolutely, data protection is another area where various branches of government are looking at it and that there needs to be joined up thinking on this. So let's move on to an issue that Dominic Robb has put centre stage and very frequently in his public pronouncements about privacy laws. He's accused the Human Rights Act of encouraging a, a, what he calls a drift towards European privacy laws, which he says a judge made. Do you think he has a case, June? In saying that? I think one of the key themes in the consultation is essentially that in the balancing exercises that courts make 
or engage in when they're considering in particular Article 8, right to privacy versus Article 10, freedom of expression, that the courts are favoring Article 8 over Article 10, essentially, in cases involving injunctions, but also I think in general, that seems to be one of the main themes of this argument. And as we say in our consultation response, it's a bit of a complex picture. On one hand, we are concerned that the government hasn't really provided any evidence to back up this claim. And we spoke to some specialist media law lawyers as well. And they spoke a bit about how in practice, there are a lot of reasons why, for example, in the reported judgments, it may appear that the courts are maybe disproportionately favoring Article 8 claims over Article 10, which is precisely because within the infrastructure of the Human Rights Act and because of lobbying on the part of press organizations back when the Human Rights Bill was being debated, there was concern that privacy would win out over freedom of the press. And so the courts have, in their reported judgments, sought and needed to justify cases where privacy has, quote-unquote, won out. I think it basically requires a bit more consideration. And there are a lot of unintended consequences that we believe the government hasn't fully considered um, in trying to tinker with or alter fundamentally the balance between privacy and freedom of expression. And because the area is so complex, we think the government should, for example, consider separate legislation if it wants to, delimiting the right to privacy and considering the ways in which it might interact with freedom of expression in a more systematic and comprehensive way than kind of a blanket statement in a very high-level Bill of Rights that is either going to be too general in order to have a practical effect, or it's going to be so specific that the unintended consequences are such that it might actually reduce protections in ways that we can't really imagine or think about yet. And this is not to say that there isn't an issue, but the solution we can be more imaginative about how we resolve, we go about resolving that issue that doesn't involve simultaneously limiting rights for everyone and limiting everyone's access to these rights. Lizzie, when the Human Rights Act was first coming in, there was huge alarm in the press about a privacy law coming in as well. On the other side, there were huge concerns about the fact that the public had very little protection from the press. They only had, you know, breach of confidence to protect them. How harmful has it been for media freedom? So it's actually really interesting to go back and look at the debates in Parliament when the Act was being introduced. And we did that for the purposes of our proposal. And the government of the day was very clear that they weren't planning to introduce a privacy law and also that they felt that freedom of expression should absolutely have primacy over rights of privacy. Those were clearly the intentions at the time this law was introduced, but within just a couple of years of the Human Rights Act coming into force, misuse of private information claims were born, and they've grown exponentially ever since. Within a few years of those claims starting to come into the courts, the case law became settled that neither privacy nor freedom of expression should be held to be more important than the other. It should just be a balancing act and they should be considered equal. So that's exactly contrary to what Parliament's intention was at the time. 
And this is one of the reasons we now say reform is needed. A real concern for the press has been the blurring of boundaries between privacy rights and reputation rights. And reputation rights are dealt with by defamation laws traditionally. And there was really careful, detailed consultation and reform to the Defamation Act back in 2013, which introduced various protections for the press, things like a one-year limitation period where you only have a year to bring a claim and a serious harm threshold before you're able to to get a claim into court. But the most important thing, of course, is that you can't win a defamation claim if what's been published about you is true, because under English law, you don't have a right to a reputation that you don't deserve. But when it comes to privacy claims, they're brought on the basis that it doesn't matter if it's true or false. It just matters that it's private. So you can get people preventing newspapers from publishing information that is true, but which the courts have said is private. And I think the Bloomberg case recently um, is a good example of this. Let's just explain quickly what that Bloomberg case is. This was a case that Bloomberg News lost on appeal and that was earlier this year. And this was the story of, of a businessman who was under investigation and Bloomberg had, had published his name and he sued the publication for misuse of his private information. But there's great concern across the media that this judgment will restrict investigative journalism into corporate wrongdoing. Exactly. Uh, the position now is the Supreme Court has confirmed that the, the starting point is always going to be that individuals have a right to privacy in relation to pre-charge investigations. So if they're being interviewed by police, if there's a police investigation, if they've been arrested, any of that, the press can't publish it. And the facts of of the Bloomberg case, as you've explained, they were talking about the, the corporate activities, someone's business role as a director of a multinational company. I don't think that's the sort of thing that the ordinary person in the street would consider to be activity that's part of your private life. And yet, the the press aren't able to report on it. I mean, potentially this means that if a politician was arrested and we knew that and the crime could have bearing on on their public role, the starting point would still be that the press can't report it. And that's a real concern. And the other side of this is that, you know, one of the most important roles for the press is to be a watchdog on the use of state power. And the police are obviously one of the most important facets of that. But if we can't report on what the police and, and other authorities are doing, then that really limits the press's ability to perform that key function. Quinn, when we're looking at this, and clearly there are reasons for great concern about the press being prevented from, from investigating public interest stories like this. But I imagine part of the issue is... How do you ensure that the press has the freedom to report while protecting intrusion into people's private lives at the same time? It's a very interesting, excuse me, kind of balancing that is actually part of European case law where they have sought to balance these rights to private lives and freedom of expression. And it's actually interesting that in trying to set up the European courts as kind of a boogeyman, in, in this particular case around privacy. The only case that they cite was one particular case in terms of their consultation documents where the European courts had made a decision that they, they didn't particularly like. And that's because actually the individual cases and the context of those could be very complex and need to be judged on a case-by-case basis. But one of the overall things that we like 
to, to just reflect on as an organization that's a human rights organization, which takes into account the need to protect all human rights as universal and indivisible, is that you can't have from a, think of from a global perspective, you can't truly have freedom of expression without a right to privacy as well. If people don't feel that there's certain information about their own personal lives that can be kept separate, then oftentimes they censor themselves or they are retaliated against in a certain way that actually decreases freedom of expression overall. This is true for the media in places as well as for private individuals. So this is why the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression in the past has had specific statements that they've made about the need to balance privacy and data protection with freedom of expression and the way that these need to be seen as mutually reinforcing rights and not antagonistic rights. And that's what we're talking about here is trying to achieve the right balance between the two. So I think there's agreement between all of you that remedies are needed to defend freedom of expression, but that this may offer an opportunity this consultation on reforming the Human Rights Act, but it is not necessarily the right forum for making these changes. And a last question I'd like to ask is something that you touched on earlier, June, is if the government is successful in pushing through what it calls a presumption in upholding freedom of expression, what would that mean for protecting our other rights? I think there are kind of two answers to this question, depending on whether you have a good faith interpretation of what the government is doing with the entire Human Rights Act through trying to replace it with a Bill of Rights, or if you take a less charitable reading and a more, I guess, cynical and I guess we would say honest reading of what the government is trying to do. If we take a good faith approach to it and take it at its word that the government is committed to strengthening freedom of expression, then the proposals individually, and if they take the kind of informed approach that I guess Lizzie as Associated Newspapers and the Society of Editors has set out like actual, you know, responses that are evidenced and based on actual practice, then there is the potential to potentially protect certain aspects of freedom of expression as they apply specifically to journalists. There is that interpretation. But in reality and in practical terms, if the government is able to ram through its overhaul of the Human Rights Act, and even if in that new Bill of Rights, it purports to create a presumption in favor of protecting freedom of expression. Fundamentally, because of the other things that it's trying to do to the very framework of the human rights protection and the end point, which we think will be to withdraw from the European Convention of Human Rights, it will ultimately have a regressive effect, including on freedom of expression, including on right to press freedom. and. It's for this reason that we're really keen to emphasize seeing the forest for the trees when it comes to this legislation. And there are many things that the government could actually do to enhance rights protections. And I very much agree with Quinn that the rights protected in the Human Rights Act should be a floor and not a ceiling. There are many things that we could do to improve the lives of people here and to 
to manifest the kind of vision of a better society that the Human Rights Act was enacted to enable. But this isn't what's going to enable that to happen, and it will actually make things much worse for many people in the UK. Thanks, June. And thanks to you and to Quinn and Lizzie. We are now out of time. The consultation closed in March, and we're all now going to have to wait to hear the government's response. Thanks, everyone, for taking part. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org. 